Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture bulletin. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, VHS or Beta Murder, new independent horror movie broadcast signal intrusion based on actual stories of videos that interrupted broadcast TV in America in the 1980s. Are there messages to be found in the static? And let's get toasty, because we'll need to. We listen to New Zealander Aldous Harding's new record, Warm Chris. Plus, estoy tan enfermo como un loro. That means I'm sick as a parrot. We watch <laughs> Super Greed, the fight for football. Sky's documentary about the disastrous push for a European Super League. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker and hello to Andrew. You've just come back from holiday. What's that? Holiday? Yes, I've come back from holiday and I've brought you a marvellous gift, Sean, which is uh, COVID, which is why I'm recording uh, remotely here. Two two lions on my test. You know it. You know it means I can't go out. Yeah. yeah, you can't go out. What are you going to do? You're probably going to sit in and watch great TV and stream some movies. I'll just sit um, here podcasting. Did you soak up the culture while you were away? Have you seen anything new? Had latest hot sounds? Well, we were on the uh, we were on the, uh, the, the the west coast of uh, of California, uh, mm-hmm. so naturally I just listened to the new Half Man Half Biscuit album a lot. The vibes are all years. Um, it, yeah. it, it, it is quite nice listening to music in completely in its not in its natural environment. But no, uh, just uh, swerved the pop culture for a bit because I, I sort of felt like I needed a, a, a couple of weeks off but apparently it was beautiful and sunny here so there was no point in going away anyway was there <laughs> no it was glorious and there were moments where everything wasn't completely awful i'll tell you um, what i did do actually I that. yeah for the, what, what i did do? do for the lengthy plane journey finally got into the expanse the fantastic soap opera the expanse which had given oh. one go previously mm-hmm. and just hadn't been able to get on with it but trapped on a plane for 12 hours is the best way to experience a fantastic sprawling epic about enclosed space environments uh, where you can't go outside and uh, where terrible murders and kidnappings are taking place so i i realize this is this is the last with everything desk here but the expanse <laughs> is really worth watching Oh, okay. I haven't watched it either, so I'm I'm further behind than you. Should we meet our first guest? Yes, let's do that. Anthony Teasdale, writer, gentleman about town, editor of the Umbrella magazine, returns to the Culture Bunker. How are you, Anthony? Absolutely fine. Can I just say that the the about town is uh, Skelmersdale. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're, yeah, it's like you know, I'm a writer about town, Skelmersdale or Kirby or something like that. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine, guys. I think like all. The, the uh, listeners enjoying this fantastic weather. It's just better, isn't it? Because winter is so is so grim in the mm. UK. Not in terms of extremes, but in terms of the amount of grey and the darkness. You know, when it's going dark in November at like five to four, you you it's it's tough, and then suddenly, you know midway through february things are starting to lighten up so that's massively improved my mood like everyone else i had covid last week which i believe is the latest trend with the kids (laughs) literally the kids but that's all fine so we're coming out of that and yeah i'm feeling sunny optimistic and fashionable so in the latest umbrella magazine apparently you're covering the different crests of the different cities and running the rule over them umbrella being the, the magazine for the thinking gentleman who's conscious of style matters what's what's your favorite then what 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 uh, what crest comes out top of the uh, crest clash well yeah this has now appeared on the website first appeared in print actually a couple of years ago but now we've now put it on the website there's some really really good ones i'm quite a big fan of antwerp's so antwerp <laughs> is like a reverse hand of Ulster. It's like a big white hand on a red background. There's various dragons. You, I mean, if you have a look on the site, you will see it there because it is fascinating. Well, I mean, if, if you're like me and not very popular with girls, it, it is really fascinating. You know, in the same way that I find, I, I was thinking the other day, who are the world, who are, who are Britain's trendiest bin men? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Who's got I the know, crest? Who are you know, I don't then. know. And the, the whole thing was that that city crests are incredibly important. You know, Bradford's was my favourite. Oh, I was about to say, it's a cracker, yes. isn't it, Bradford? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it? <laughs> don't want to give it away because I don't want to give it away to people who haven't seen it. Go and look up Umbrella Magazine at Bradford's Crest. Yes, yeah, so umbrellamagazine.co.uk <laughs> and the badges of honour is the one to see. I, and also, can I just say, Will the world's uh, trendiest pensioners, that's good. 
<laughs> I'm on my way to Bain one of them, actually. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. You're talking to them. Well, before we move on, a reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture, and much more, plus all manner of mugs and T-shirts. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Let's start with the movies, and in addition to the burgeoning genre of person involved in restoration of old videotapes, discovers something spooky in the old videotapes. On top of Netflix's Archive 81 and the brilliant British movie Censor from last year, new US suspense picture Broadcast Signal Intrusion concerns strange and disturbing video clips that break into standard TV transmissions in 1980s Chicago. Video archivist James tries to investigate where they came from, and he finds that there is a real conspiracy behind them. What will we think? Here is the trailer. Who's responsible for last night's act of video piracy? These video pirates managed to briefly override broadcast video. The incident is now under investigation by the FCC. What was that? That is no concern of yours. What do you know about this? The Sally Sparks incident? Only the creepiest unsolved mystery hack of all time? Fifteen years later and they still never caught the hackers who pulled it off. Broadcast intrusions are a rare cultural phenomenon. In both intrusions, a woman went missing just prior to the signal being hijacked. Why are you so curious about this? I need to know why. You are out of your depth, my friend. You think there's a pattern? You think the tapes are trying to tell you something? They are. You're not going to find it, though. Anthony Seasdale, are you much of a horror head? No. No, I'm, okay. I, I'm, I'm easily scared, and I don't mm. like being scared. I remember going to see um, the Blair Witch Project in the US in 1999 and thought it was real. Horror films are like roller coasters for me, you know. They're just sort of things I tend to avoid. But I thought this was great. I really enjoyed it. You know, and I'm. this is not my sort of thing. It's quite indie. It's quite claustrophobic. But it is gripping. It's not absolutely terrifying. It's a bit scary and a bit weird. It involves you. You're interested in what's going to happen next. And, yeah, I thought it was great. I think it's quite interesting is that it's set in 1999. And I think the reason why that works is because there are no smartphones. Because smartphones cut off so many mm, plots. Mm, mm. Pre-smartphones, you've no idea what's happening somewhere else. But, you know, when you've got a location finder on your phone, then obviously you have. So I think it, it lets you do that and it gives you space to do that. And it's great. It's it, it, it's dark. It, you know, there's this guy, James, who's looking at all these videos and then he slows these videos around to find secret sort of messages. It's a little bit X-Files, but it's, it, it, yeah, it, it's a really enjoyable way to spend an hour and a half and would thoroughly recommend. Yeah, it's also, uh, it's, it's quite a lot of Silence of the Lambs as well, isn't it? In that, that what yeah. you have, the, the kind of key motif is the intrusion of these videos, which have strange plastic-faced individuals who may or may not be automata yeah kind of you know racked with some kind of psychic pain that keep howling at the camera and the contrast between that and like the regular sitcoms that they're breaking into or the the kind of political discussion programs that they're breaking into is extremely disturbing the background just for to, to fill it in james the video archivist his wife a ballet dancer has has vanished missing years ago in a possible suicide. He's already in a fragile state of mind. And then these intrusions kind of begin to play on his mind. And part of the kind of conceit of the film is that it presents out that, that there's no real kind of indication that he may be imagining any of this stuff for the majority of the film. And then it begins to creep in that possibly he might not be, be all there. I mean, did you find Anthony as a, you know, as a as a as a psychological exploration rather than as a we're going to present you with disturbing images things. Did you find that it worked at that level? Yeah, I did. I think when he sees like videos with his uh, girlfriend's name on, and you're like, oh, that suddenly appeared. Where's that come from? And is he and having meetings with people from with a professor from a university who's who's like supposed to be looking into this? You're like, 
is he imagining this or not? So at first it feels extremely real and then it sort of starts to widen out a bit. Yeah, I did th- I did find that. What can we believe? And I, th- I, th- I think there was something, there's something very scary, like you say, about those weird plasticky faces. I think they remind me a bit of, is it, of, of Leatherface in the yes. Chainsaw Massacre. There's something about that. It's really disturbing. It's Yeah, I, I, I thought it worked on that level too. It plays very heavily on the uncanny valley, the idea that something might look it you know, might look human and then a tiny detail reveals mm-hmm. that it, it, mm-hmm. it, it actually isn't. I felt that the feel was very much well, what was refreshing about it was it very much had the feel of a nineteen seventies suspense movie. You know, the the soundtrack yeah. is extremely bearded hair even very you know, very dramatic. The palette is all washed out. It has a kind of dreamlike feel. The idea that the kind of rabbit hole this guy is going down is you know psychological as well as in terms of in terms of proof he's you know the, the world starts to feel different around him yeah I, I i thought i i agree with that you know i thought if you like film music it's super it's like it's quite a it's an off-kilter jazz sort of soundtrack isn't it yes it's it's a, a li- it's a it's a little bit david axelrod it it, it it does and it does it could if it was you know because fashions don't change certainly for men in the way that they <laughs> they used to if someone had said that was made in 1999, I would have totally believed it. Yeah, there is a retro feel to it as well. Even the graphics were a bit sort of stranger mm-hmm. things as well. Brilliant. Sean, the, the, the phenomenon of signals, pirate signals breaking into broadcast was real. It was, uh, you know, people breaking into public service television mm. as, a, as a prank did actually happen. What, what, what did you think of the film? I think it's a great premise. It was just a really, really good idea because as Tony's saying... It's quite difficult to scare people of our age, you know what I mean? We've been through quite a lot. Actually, it's really horrifying. And that sudden break and you just get this glitch of something and you don't know where it comes from. It took me back to that idea of the TV being real as a child and this idea that it is a retro horror that's really important somehow the horror is more horrifying because it's really tapping into childhood fears i thought that was just so good it worked really really well and i again i don't really watch that much horror i've never seen the blair witch project because i just think i don't want to be scared but this would be far more my sort of thing Mm. and it is very much like censor as well it does come from that stream there's obviously this is as you say the burgeoning genre and yeah i'll lap it up vhs beta max well the the, i mean i think you know what you're saying because i'm not much of a horror person myself mm. either because i find you know horrible monster jumps out of box or man chops head off to be <laughs> not really particularly you know it, it, engaging in, in the sense that it, it's it just takes place within its own fictional universe whereas this the idea that something horrific can intrude into the familiar mm. you know that not just that you know a television broadcast but like this guy's working life and can reveal that there are things going on behind the scenes that make the things that are happening in front of the scenes seem mm. banal and meaningless to change change the entire context of your life. That I do find interesting, which is why I did enjoy the Blair Witch Project because it was a completely brand new spin on on horror. Where, where is this fixation on weird stuff in videotapes coming from? Then is it we're we were all sorts of traumatized by our dads getting Betamaxes at a VHS back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> it must be. I say I think it taps into childhood fear for our age group, but the world is actually too horrific to make anything in the modern day. Is that you know? There's something about it needs to be set than a few years in the past, decades yeah. ago. There's a need for us to say there is an enormous amount of fear going on at the moment in our current lives, but we can't place it anywhere but in the past. So it does those two things. I think it does it really well. It's like a good B movie as well. It's kind of schlocky. You know, mm. there's kind of naff bits where someone just reveals too much plot sitting on a sofa. I love that about it, and I think it was doing it deliberately. Mm. Meeting people in car parks while they, they sit there <laughs> yeah, smoking. And guess skis. what? This happened. Yes. Yes. Please never meet anybody in a car park. It's, it, it never goes well. <laughs> there is a big yeah. video drone vibe to this mm-hmm. as well for for listeners of that particular age. Uh, you know the idea that uh, reality and the world of the tapes start to blur, and you're not really sure what is real. Did that ring that particular bell for you as well? I I thought it was. I mean, so, so, what I thought was uh, remind me of the ring. The, mm. ja- the Japanese thing. And I think there is about seeing something that's not meant to be there coming through that you are powerless. There's that feeling that something terrible has happened and I can't do anything about it, but I am suddenly being dragged in it. You know, the James character is very obsessive because throughout the film, I found myself saying, just don't bother. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what, James? Leave it. 
just leave it. You'll be fine. Do you know what I mean? But, but, do, do, do you know what I mean? You felt like saying that to him. There because, are a lot of characters who actually do say that to yeah, him. Yeah. Just, he's like, you don't want to do this, man. Yeah, but then, of course, like the nature of the, the horror is in ourselves, not in the circumstances mm. around us. It is our mm. obsession that drives us to madness, that kind yes. of thing. I thought this was a great film. I was slightly let down by the ending because the premise is so fantastic. Yeah. But it's that resolving it is almost a betrayal of the premise because the premise is there are huge unknowable mm. things mm. out there which you're never going to handle on. And they may, be in the, they may be in the margins of the videotape. They may be in the tiny clip that you miss because you blink. And then to resolve and explain it sort of yeah. it reduces it. <laughs> It's also foregrounded in that meeting that he goes to for bereaved people, I presume it is. It's not ever quite explained, but a woman talks and she does that speech about how she can't resolve these things and they don't make sense. And is yes. it a dream in reality? And she's never going to have an ending. I thought, ah, that's, ah, I see. I think that was there for a reason. I did find that conclusion. I, I, there's, there's an element near the end where he, he meets someone who's significant in this mm. in the film. And I'm like... Or how how does he know who he is? I, I didn't quite get why he was in that place. So there was a couple of like for me plot holes. I'm like, yeah, right. How's that happened? Yeah, the mechanics of it aren't perfect, but then I yeah. think it's the kind of film that's about mechanics. Mm. You're yeah. not you're not guided to this to the the place of resolution by evidence and deduction. You're gl- you're guided there by strange vibes. Mm. Yes, and that to me is vibes. far more satisfying. Mm. Well worth seeing, though. I think we'd all yeah. agree. Absolutely. It's it's cinema, and I believe it's also going to be streaming shortly. It's a, an indie job, so broadcast signal intrusion. It'll either be showing in your local art house if you've got one, or it'll be showing on your local art house app, and you, it's quite easy to get hold of them, isn't it? Yeah. Right. I'm, we saying go for, I'm saying go for it. Yeah. Definitely. Every week, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs so we can keep up to date and pretend we're young and with it. The tunes go straight on the playlist and the link is in your show notes. Anthony Teasdale, what have you brought in for us today? I've brought in Gome and Titles, Beer and Gold on the fabulous Toy Tonics label. It's, this is great. You know, I, I heard this on a, a stream and bought it immediately for DJing within that. It is, I don't really know much about them apart from the fact that this is an 808 beat with a German guy talking over the top in a slightly camp way and an electro disco backing and it will make you dance. But I would say, I think what's important is it's on an absolutely fantastic label called Toytronics and everything they put out is fantastic. Fantastic. The brilliant label and all their stuff is on all the streaming channel. I mean, you'll find it on Spotify and this is just the latest track by them. And this is the label that takes in like Italian disco, electro. And I don't know if you remember um, one of my favorite records of the last five years, the Phenomenal Hand Clap Band. Oh, they're great. The Phenomenal Hand Clap Band. They are really yes. brilliant. Oh, I don't yes. Know. The Ray and Ray Mang remix of the Phenomenal and again on Toytronics and just really worth searching out. And this is when I saw the label, I thought, well, this will be brilliant. And it mm-hmm. is. So, yeah, if you like a bit of Euro electro disco, and I think I'm probably looking about 75% of listeners here, then, <laughs> uh, maybe more, maybe more. Mm-hmm. I'm going to chuck a bit of uh, Phenomenal Handclap Band on the playlist as well, because they're, they're so great. Oh. It, it's as yeah, if the band from yeah. The Muppet Show had gone aggressively disco. <laughs> Yes, um, well, it's got to be the Ray Mang remix. Okay, Ray Mang, we're getting down the rabbit hole here. Ray Mang also did some great mixes for S Express oh, of theme yeah, from S right. Express theme. So thumbs up for Ray Mang. I can recommend going down a Toy Tonics wormhole because I think they, they, they there's a, there's there's just a lot of good stuff going on there, isn't there? Yeah, there is, yeah, absolutely. Judge Not by the Phenomenal Hand Clock Band is sensational. I insist everyone listen to it. And then just get into Toy Tonics because you will find everything you want there. They are, you know, when, you know, there's always a label that signifies an era. Now, obviously, there's less of that these days because of what, you know, streaming, etc. But Toy Tonics are one of those defining labels of the moment. They are thoroughly open-minded and every record they put out is brilliant well let's have a listen then this is beer and gold by gome and Titil. Hallelujah. 
nervös, weil die Classics, ja, sie treffen auf die Street. Für mich böse, mach noch mein neues Tech in meinem Kiez. Komm mal frisch von dem Training und die Nase, sie ist schief. Für mich gut. Following 2019's album Designer, Hannah Top, a.k.a. New Zealand's Aldous Harding, is back with her fourth album, Warm Chris. It was recorded with producer John Parrish, he of PJ Harvey, Jenny Haval and Eels fame. And it was recorded in Wales. We can't play a track because of the man, but we will put one on our <laughs> playlist. Link is in the show notes. Tony, I'm going to start with you. Were you up on Aldous Harding before you heard this? Predictably, yes. <laughs> she did a great record called The Barrel, which is mm-hmm. on one of my YouTube playlists. And it, it she's sort of a bit whimsy, a, a bit wacky. Mm-hmm. But she combined and has very strange vocals and then combines that with really soothing, jazzy, slightly funky background to it. And mm-hmm. so when I, I was a big fan of The Barrel, so yeah. leapt into this and enjoyed this as well. I mean, it's hard to make your mind up on an album in the first listen. I think the best mm-hmm. you can get on a first listen is, I'll, I think I could listen to that again. <laughs> so I did that, and I, I, I think it's a really enjoyable album. There is, you'll find a lot of acoustic piano on there, mm-hmm. acoustic yes. guitar, but very nice brushy drums. A bit, she's a little bit like Regina Spector. Do you remember her? Yeah, mm. yeah. In what way do you think? Slightly cocky, slightly, mm. you know, Slightly madcap woman. There is an otherworldliness to her that I really like. Mm, mm. I think sort of musically, some of the chord changes, you don't expect them to sound yeah. the way they are. Yeah. The, the vocals are very personal. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to love. There's, there's, a, there's a few tracks on there. There's one called TikTok I thought was fantastic, mm-hmm. which is very like The Barrel. There's one called Fever, which is really great. And I, I think it's, it's definitely worth plenty of your time. So you're saying that there's some sort of obtuseness about her, yes. at least I'm saying that. And as well, the lyrics don't always make sense, so they completely leap out of you. There's a song called Staring at Henry Moore yes. that includes Try for Any One Note, Cover Me in Sugar, and Be Natural. And it's just, that's the sort of thing where you just go, what? When you sort of, it starts <laughs> to fade into the background, you just go, pardon? What? Yes. <laughs> What's that? And the metering. So how I'm interested in you think that she sounds like Regina Spector, because I just don't think she sounds like anybody at all, and especially on this album. I suppose she, Regina, I put Regina Spector into the slightly cookie singing right, yes. about slightly odd yeah. things. And that's, that's what, that's the similarity for me. That's how, that's why I felt it. Mm. Now, Andrew, are there enough robots on this for you? No, there's nowhere near enough robots, but, uh, <laughs> and it's far, far, far too human for my taste. Yet, that said, I did enjoy it a lot. Mm. I think it has, you know, the um, the title Warm Chris. I don't know who Chris is, but uh, he seems like a very caring chap. <laughs> um, it, it, it has the womb-like envelopments that I think mm. people are very, very in need of at the moment. Um, this is uh, an exceptionally intimate-sounding record. It is, uh, it's one of those things where you can hear every squeak on a fretboard. Yeah. And you can hear every <laughs> yeah. breath on a microphone. Yeah. Uh, we are very close up with our oldest, oldest Huxley, as I keep accidentally calling her. <laughs> and, um, you know, that there is, uh, I actually found that very, very persuasive. You know, I, I, I can't pretend great sort of understanding of what she's all about, but the mm. one, one line did stand out actually in, yeah. the, in the track Bubbles, where she kind of sings with this very resigned and uh, very sort of ground down voice, I'll be fine because I'm a winner. And I just thought I can I can identify strongly in a world where absolutely everybody has to be on all the time and has to mm. be a winner and has to be mm-hmm. uh, on the front foot and has to be speaking their truth loudly. There is a sort of you know what 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 is more rebellious and what is more punk rock than receding into your bubble and mm. uh, refusing to be determined by the outside world. So I mean. It's 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 very low key stuff. It is like I say uh, about uh, secluding yourself and building a, a warm and furry wall against the outside world. That mm. I think is uh, I, I found very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Now she is known for not only singing songs that do stay cover me in sugar and be natural, but also she changes her voice even mid song. So yeah. she, you're getting a very high range, and then she's almost impersonating someone with another way of singing. Is that ever jarring, Andrew, or did you start to warm to that? Because it's like listening to someone who's got multiple personality disorders, or is it like listening to most people? Because we all have different mm-hmm. registers, and and yeah. uh, you know. 
since young, we've known that there's no single personality. The idea of multiple, is, <laughs> we should talk about single personality disorder because there is no single personality. We all have, we all have different roles A for different circumstances. Point. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I mean, what what, what I find boring is artists who can only be one person at mm -hmm. a time who don't want to explore other sides of themselves who don't want to explore different registers different voices authorial voices you know because mm. it always amazes me that in pop music we always assume without exception that the singer is always singing about yeah. themselves in their own yeah. voice from their own point of view what yeah. about multiple authorial voices so mm -hmm. no i didn't find that I, I found that refreshing i found that mm -hmm. exciting i found it likable she has actually said, I don't know what my normal singing voice is anymore. She's mm. more comfortable with being called a song actor, which I think is totally brilliant, rather than being yeah. a musician. She thinks that sound of a musician is so dull that mm. the song actor is far more um, summing her up. There's, I think, you know, you tell you about her being in this bubble. This album, to me, I think she's trying to seek freedom and liberty. She's trying to get out of this bubble. Maybe that's what that song is about. But there's so much about running away and not being yourself and just... Yeah. disappearing into some sort of freedom, but you don't really know what it is. It doesn't really have a form. That, to me, was very exciting to listen to. I don't think that's contradictory at all. I, I think what what, it, what is more of an escape than building a world that's entirely mm. your own mm. and living that in it and, uh, you know, inviting people into it. You know, she's building and creating her own universe. Yes. So Sleaford Mods' Jason Williamson is on Leathery Whip. Did anyone guess? guess it doesn't stand out that it's him, does it? No. He's the Sleaford Walls. A Southern American accent on or something else yeah. like that. Yeah. I didn't notice them. Well, perhaps, <laughs> he's, uh, perhaps he too is beginning to explore his different registers and personalities. Well, I think maybe he is. And what it's less of idea. an album, more of an encounter group. Uh, what, what I would say is that, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would say to everyone who's listened to this is to give this a go. This is very intimate music. I could imagine it, you know, you've had a bit of a hassly day at, at work and you're sitting at home just looking at your phone. Stick this on. And I think it's quite nice. I'd also say if you run a coffee shop in Hebden Bridge, this is ideal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. those, those guys are all over it. Yeah, I think so. Uh, points, when I was fine, her metering is really weird. Mm. And it's not, that's, the rhyme schemes are quite odd, which I really, really like. But the points where I think, well, the, where's the tune? Where's the catch? And suddenly I've got Lawn, which is. If you go and look at the video, she's dressed up as a lizard, because of course she is. I've got the whole verse of Lawn stuck in my head all day yesterday from listening to it. You know, it's so, it just sort of blindsides you in this really quite exciting way, I think, this album. It just doesn't sound, and it doesn't sound the same on every listen. It's like a perfume. <laughs> there you go. Notes. Yeah, mm. I really liked it. Do you want my fun fact, everybody? Yeah. Um, John Parrish, the producer, his sister is the actor Sarah Parrish from the telly. God. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a, yeah, a multi talented. I thought you were going to say John Parrott, the oh, snooker God. player. That's <laughs> 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 a fun fact for Ray, With Ray Reardon on Maracas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ray Reardon's on this record. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think it's really good. And I, I wasn't into, from, I know lots of people found her from the last album, Designer, and I didn't quite get it, but I think I get it now. Mm. Mm. Top marks. Top marks. Top marks. We are the Goon Squad and we're coming to town. Fashioning Masculinities, the Art of Menswear, is on now at the V&A Museum in London. It runs till the 6th of November. This is about menswear, men's fashion. So naturally, we sent Sean and Yelena <laughs> Sofronovic to go and find out more while uh, Anthony T. still stayed at home cataloguing his umbrellas. Death to the suit. And long live the fig leaf. And lo, Yelena and I visited Fashioning Masculinities, the Art of Menswear, at the Victorian Albert Museum in London last week, because we know that fashion and culture collide. And we also like looking at men in pink, some of which were on display. We spoke to co-curator Rosalind McEver about the ideas behind the show. But first, Yelena, I want to ask what you're expecting from Fashioning Masculinities. Well, Myself, having worn the same set of clothes for probably the last 10 years of my life, I can't say that I'm a fashionista, but I, I know that the V&A has a very strong approach to curating textiles and curating fashion. They've got a fantastic room upstairs where you can look at costumes. And the BBC released a fantastic range of documentaries called Secrets of the Museum, where they talk about the treasures that are tucked away in the V&A's archives and how they curate them. And I knew from watching that that there would be a great respect to costumery in 
this because they go into granular detail as to what it takes to put a dress on a body. But what I really was interested in and was surprised by was the amount of politics that permeates throughout the exhibition Mm -hmm. and how dress was and is used as a political statement as well as a fashion statement. Mm. So the first room really is classicism plus themes of fluidity, which seem to go. So we have these enormous sculptures. We have Hera. We have the Borgese gladiator. We have bodybuilding and we do have the fig leaf. But we also have Patti Smith in there. So there's an idea that the roles are swapped from the very start. That's something that I didn't expect because I thought it would mostly be about tailoring. And I think actually the first room is probably my favourite. I think it encompasses everything the exhibition was trying to do. It focuses a lot on Mm. shirts, but it uses that as a real in. As you said, there's so much about classical beauty standards in there, all the way back from the Grand Tour. And I love the Borghese Gladiator. They had a statue of him that was made for King Charles II. And it ended up being made so often that the mould wore out. So it had loads of those (laughs) little details peppered throughout. And also, like you said, it brought in... real dimension with sexuality. We saw binders in there and we saw other ideas about proportions and about beauty standards. So I think actually the very first room might be the very best room in some ways. Maybe. There's one with the cob piece in it. So yes, (laughs) I was drawn. Sean, do you think there was enough street style and 80s and 90s subculture in it? As we saw, there's a bit of hip hop. I've seen a reference to ASAP Rocky. There's a bit of Bowie. There's a bit of the Beatles. But is there enough of those things for you? Yeah, we have a small black and white picture of a Tommy Nutter suit. And in that sense, what I was expecting of that late 60s explosion that's quite mod, that then goes into an idea of flower power, that fashion can change the world because you've decided to look like your grandmother. And then into, there's an interesting sort of late 70s, early 80s, casual thing that comes in and there's football culture terrace culture and how they influence fashion none of that was there and that was a real surprise we sort of leap from this idea of the Beatles wore this and they looked a little bit like ladies to people in the 60s to RuPaul and for that that was too much of a leap for me I wanted some mention but I do think they had sort of just an embarrassment of wealth and really wanted to show what fashion had been like 18th and 19th century for the fashion students I think there was pandering to that crowd a bit so maybe they could pull that out and have another exhibition about that particular time just before the turn of the century last one I do think what it did really well though was have a very international approach in its curation that often is missing Mm -hmm. when we talk about fashion in quite a western centric eurocentric way so I think there's a lot of historical background there are lots of big names like Omar Victor Diop there's Yinka Shonabari in there there's Grace Wales Bonner there's a Kahinde Wiley portrait so we see a lot of these international influences in fashion and how the politics of them is being subverted now in the way that we understand certain trends. Absolutely. Well, you and I, we both stormed up to co-curator Rosalind McKeever. Should we give it a listen? Yes. So tell us about the genesis of this exhibition. Well, this is the V&A's first major menswear show. And for a number of years, we've been thinking about doing that, but also considering how best to do it. It's impossible to do a chronological, definitive history of menswear. So we wanted to think about it in a thematic way that reflects the whole collections of the V&A. So we've brought together our fashion collections together with contemporary designers. We've acquired a lot of young designers for this show and bringing that together with painting, sculpture, photography and works on paper to really show the myriad ways that masculinity has been kind of expressed through attire and appearance. Why do you think that menswear hasn't been shown so much? The onus on women's wear and we're used to seeing the V&A do that very well but what is it about something so integral (laughs) you know know, someone has got to get dressed for work in the morning. Well exactly there's a moment of excitement around the menswear industry at the moment we're seeing huge creativity and a lot of young designers who are really pushing the boundaries of what menswear could be so it felt like a great moment to think about how menswear has developed over the centuries and how that's informed our current moment. What about the contribution from Alessandra Michelle who is obviously a personal hero of mine completely. You start with that quote where he is talking about subverting what is masculine about fluidity of dressing now and how he wants to push that. What involvement did he have? So we're delighted to be partnering with Gucci for this exhibition but the putting together all of the looks and artworks were included. We did that before Gucci came on board but it 
was really a, a great synergy for us to be working with a house and a designer who are really at the forefront of of pushing those boundaries of of looking at how our idea of masculinity can be refashioned through clothes. Something I really loved was the very international element of this exhibition. You've really taken into account influences in Indian fashion. There's beautiful yellow Chinese silks. How important was that when it came to curating this for you? It was really important in that we're conscious of the V&A being a European institution, but also one with incredible Asian collections and really thinking about how those links and how they can change our ideas, certainly around colour. So, for example, we include a wonderful bright pink Angarka from our own holdings in the exhibition, which allows us to think about how in South Asia, pink has never been a gendered colour. And so what does that tell us about the way that European fashions have developed and inform our kind of contemporary global view of the fashion industry? I'm glad you brought up pink as well, because the pink Mao suit is absolutely wonderful. And I think it raises an important point about utilitarianism in fashion and how that was tied in with political backlash. How important is politics in the exhibition? Well, all of the works that we have in the exhibition felt inherently political and we wanted to think about the sort of political power of menswear and how that how that is displayed. So also in our pink section, we have a portrait of Charles Coote by Joshua Reynolds, which is an image really of patriarchal power in that it's uh, Earl wearing the Order of the Garter, which is very important chivalric robes. But what's extraordinary about it is that while when it was originally painted, it was bright scarlet, over time, the pigments in the painting have faded. And so something that was once this kind of pompous power has become really an icon of camp and so that really keys us in to seeing how our ideas of what masculinity looks like have shifted over the centuries. What's the class issue with masculinity? Because obviously, and as you're referencing, we're seeing high class and high class could buy you the lace that was almost as expensive as gold, I think yes. you say that. And also it can buy you anything that handmade, the ribbons, silks, certain fabrics that would have been beyond the normal person's remit. Yes, we were really interested in the class element within menswear within this exhibition and so wanted to include a range of examples where we could so for example in the first gallery we have a pair of Marks and Spencer's underpants that anyone might wear and really thinking about how those if you think of for example how someone like James Dean or Marlon Brando in the 1950s was using something simple like a white t-shirt in cinema roles which are really about class how that has given certain ideas of masculinity new life over the centuries. There's also another photograph in the work, in the exhibition that I really love, of a teddy boy in Bradford in a pub getting ready. And so I, I think there are so many ways that subcultures and everyone really has contributed to this larger story of masculinity and fashion. Yes, denim of course being workwear and utility wear that was working class. So what were some of the things that you wish you could have included in this exhibition if you were expanding it out? Oh, there are so many things I wish I could have included in this exhibition. Narrowing it down to the nearly 300 objects that we're showing you here was uh, was excruciating at times. But what we're really hoping is that this exhibition is a jumping off point, that it will inspire people to really think about other ways that they can exhibit and include many more designers who we are unable to include here. One more question from me. Does Harry Styles need his dress back? We do not know whether Harry Styles needs his dress back, but we can find out. So, Sean, would you recommend this? I would recommend it. I think there's a lot of the history there and lots of things that I didn't realise. There's some beautiful, beautiful additions to it and it is curated as an art thing as well. There's lots of artworks that are really quite exciting that they've got on loan from other places. So I would, but I did miss people looking like the farm and wearing baggy trousers in the 90s. (laughs) I would certainly recommend it too. So pull up your stockings, adjust your breeches and check out Fashioning Masculinities, the art of menswear, which is on at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And just to confirm, it's not about the band. There's no Chris Gentry anywhere, but that's for another exhibition to come, I'm sure. 
Finally, football. It seems an awful long time ago, now that club ownership by oligarchs and journalists murdering oil states is the big question, but it's only 12 months ago since a dozen self-designated top European clubs announced plans to break away to form a closed shop Super League without relegation or promotion. Announced on the 19th of April 2021 and collapsing three days later, the Super League has gone down as perhaps the worst fiasco in sporting history. But what went on behind the scenes? A new Sky documentary, Super Greed, directed by my former editor at the lead student newspaper, Carl Heinmarch, no less, aims to explore the background. It's available to watch now. Here's the trailer. Like all the best sports stories, it wasn't about sport at all. It was about business and greed. European football clubs announce new Super League competition. This was destroying the fabric of English football. Enough is enough. How can it be right to have a situation in which you create a cartel? I've never seen something implode as swiftly as the Super League did. Anthony Teasdale, the Super League does seem like a thousand years ago now that we've got far, far bigger fish to fry. Even even up against the ridiculous state of affairs with uh, Abramovich and Chelsea and Newcastle being owned by a, a, a despotic oil state, does this still go down as the most infamous moment in football history, do you think? I don't know if it's the most infamous moment in football history, but it is a an age-old tale of human greed and how constantly scrabbling for more in the end doesn't make you more happy. And the themes here are as old as the hills themselves, that they are that there is this constant search for we want more of this. And in the end, you know, you do you do you know kill the golden goose because the whole point about football, especially in this country, is that it, it's about competition and that we all sign up for this. And what this film does, and I do think it's a superb documentary, is it, it shows just how far that greed is. It's the it's the victim status of incredibly rich football clubs who have it all, deciding that they want more. And that, that it's just not fair that they're not quite getting enough. While forgetting that it, it's just a matter of luck that they are good at the moment. You know, me and Andrew obviously were both uh, Liverpool fans. And up until the 60s, Liverpool were definitely playing second fiddle to Everton, weren't they? Yeah, they were in the second division for a, a period of time. Yeah, so what this was about is that these elite clubs separating themselves so they can all play each other. And... Then, you know, the fight to stop them when they realise that the fans of the clubs actually like the idea of a bit of jeopardy, that you might fail, that you might go down. And this, this what I thought was fantastic was the, the amount of access they got to the people involved. Not obviously the people who from the big clubs who wanted out, but the players in UEFA and FIFA who were sort of determined to stop them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Quite interesting the way that it anatomizes the the different factions within these twelve breakaway clubs because there's, there's six from, from the UK and then you know Juventus and things like that. The, the the fact that you've got what the film describes as the kind of the the, the great old houses of yeah. uh, you know of uh, Spanish football, and then you've got the sovereign wealth fund teams, the Chelseas and the and the Manchester Cities and the and the PSGs. Because PSG were not we're not we're not involved in the Super League. They decided they didn't want to have any, anything to do with it. And then you've got you know the the teams that are owned and run by Americans, including Manchester United and, and of course Liverpool, who and who seem to be driving the ideology of this, the notion that these are not teams, they're franchises. And it is our right to be in an elite forever from which we can never be relegated. Uh, and that we would just sort of, you know, have, have endless rounds of success. The film does open with a quote from Marco Bielsa, the, the then manager of Leeds. One of the reasons football is the most popular sport in the world is that the weak can defeat the powerful. And that actually happens here, not on the pitch, but off the pitch. It is the, it is the fans who shame football into reversing itself. Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of hypocrisy here as well. Because when the Premier League was set up, mm-hmm. it sort of was trying to do this on a domestic level. You know, it wanted to separate the finances of the Premier League, of the top clubs, away from the three divisions underneath, which it has successfully done. Now, of course, you do have a pyramid scheme. There is relegation. There is promotion. But they did, or, they, they did 
basically a light version of the European Super League, but at home. Would you agree, Andrew? Yeah, and I mean, the, the fact that mm-hmm. I mean, this film is a Sky production, and I did sort of ask myself, is, are we sort of skating over the fact of, of Sky's role in pumping money into British, into English football, yeah. and be, you know, beginning that process of taking it away from, you know, dad and lad on the way to see a game in a rather tumble-down stadium and, and transforming it into the essentially television spectacle that it, that it is now. I mean, I don't know. What did you did you feel that that the Sky connection perhaps maybe have coloured the uh, the way the film was? Put yeah, out? I mean, I was impressed with it because they did cover that a little bit and did say mm. that. But I I thought that I would have had more on that because once you've done that once, it, it, it it's you know once you say we are we the elite are breaking away in a domestic agenda, then you can certainly do that in a European thing. And also, would say. One, this European Super League thing isn't going to go away. I don't think it's defeated for good. And I think that we are kidding ourselves. I think we're overstating our importance as, Mm. you know, proper old school local football fans. We do provide the colour to the game, but there are literally billions of people all over the world who don't really care that much about that and just love the product, you know. If you look at the Champions League at the moment, it's becoming increasingly bloated. And that's that's the, you know, throughout you heard this, well, football has to change. I was thinking, well, why does it have to change? I mean, I, would I don't have- want it to change. And, you know, fans, fans of clubs here don't want it to change. Who wants it to change? Uh, our owners and, and, and investors. I mean, the thing that it rem- I, I had sort of filed this at the back of my mind, but that horrible moment when your club is doing something indefensible and awful and then the question comes back on you as a supporter. Well, are you are you going to stick with this? Will you? And there are people in this film who say that's it. My 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 association with my club yeah. is 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 over if this goes ahead. Now, obviously, we were all saved from that. But I was, you know, as a Liverpool fan, just absolutely shamed by the whole thing. It's like yeah. we and we're supposed to have the good owners. We're yeah. supposed to have the ones who who are in tune with the, the 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 fans, the people who pay their wages. And you know, for for three days, I'm thinking, is is that it for me in Liverpool then? I, do I really want to watch uh, an empty competition between a, a bunch of franchises when, I mean, I think somebody holds up a banner in this film. One of the Chelsea fans holds up a banner at one of the demos and it says, <laughs> we want our wet Wednesdays in Stoke <laughs> yeah. because that's what makes football work, you know. Yeah, Sean, yeah. as as a as a possibly less footbally person than than me, and well, what think, did you make um, of it as you a as a both hit the nail on the head of if this is on Sky, which is at the back of my mind all the time watching it, it's not going to tell the whole story. And I'm more interested in Tony's theory that this could still happen again. That's really interesting. That you know, there's still there is this mm. the, the smell of money there, and you know, people plotting. I found it too long because we know the ending, and it, you know, and it foregrounds mm. the ending at the start of it. Two hours of people talking about a thing that you know it was almost as long as the you know the forty eight hours of the uh, <laughs> the event itself. I'm quite sure that yeah. I was just being told the same information again and again and again. Um, I think it's a fascinating topic, but I do think if it was handled by a different company, you'd get a very different documentary out of it. You know, if it was on BBC or Channel Four or something. Um, I think it, it is too close. I think it's an absolutely fascinating subject, but just maybe there just weren't enough layers in this one. Yeah, I th- one of the one of the issues that became pretty clear was that there's not a lot of on pitch mm, European mm. football action to be seen in this film, oh, and that's course, got to be a rights yeah. issue because the kind of the the the, the uh, violence defence of uh, people's rights for individual purposes means that if you are uh, you know if you're you know, running the Champions League, you can effectively mm. censor mm. journalism by not making the footage available. You know, if you're running, you know, and there is there's some Premier League football to be seen on this. And obviously, the 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 film is constructed. It, a film is not a film about football. Mm. It's about sports politics. So it's and it's also is a period on Sky where there is no shortage of, of goals, explosions, <laughs> and people punching their chest at the corner flag. But I did get the sense that 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 they must have had to negotiate an absolute minefield here in terms of yeah. what they're going to actually get. To put on screen, as as Anthony pointed out, you know the big wigs who actually made this happen are pretty much nowhere to be seen. Although Seferin's in there, and it's he's pretty kind of uh, uncompromising in what he's got to say about the he what he considers to be the betrayal of the creation of the mm. the Super League by uh, Agnelli and these mm-hmm. guys. I, I thought it was fascinating myself. It showed kind of you know how we came to the precipice and sort of escaped. 
I don't know whether I agree that it's going to come back in the in the near term, but I think in the long term, you know, as sport is much more, more and more mediated through a television screen and less about going, there's probably an, an inevitability that the Champions mm. League will grow and grow and grow and expand and expand and expand until there's little difference between yeah. it and a and a, yeah. a Super League. That, that that's maybe the legacy. I think I think that's it, and I think we as football fans are hypocrites. You know, about ten years ago when Liverpool were in the doldrums, if someone uh, someone sort of unpleasant had come in yes, with loads of money. I reckon I'd have just gone, brilliant, he's got loads of cash. You know, and and also, you know, this week Liverpool, I've got this sort of push-pull thing with Mohamed Salah about his, you know, whether he wants to stay at the club or not. And all I can see on social media and among my friends is pay him what he's worth. You know, it's we're all, everyone's, I always say, everyone's a socialist <laughs> till it comes to coats and football. Mm. And you know, and and I think as football fans, we just want to see our teams win. And yeah. I think there is a a large amount of hypocrisy from all of us here. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about this documentary, as you saying up top, is it's actually that we want to see them fail too. We want the, there to be a big, yeah. you know, that the, 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 there is a threat that they will get relegated. I think that's really important. I think we love failure as much as we love success, even for our teams. Yeah. We want other team people to fail. Yeah, mm, well, you, yeah. You, you want the high wire. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you, that's it. Yeah, I, I think I think Sean's got. I think you've got a point. Obviously, we want that, but I think football fans do want success, but they, they just want to see other people fail. So you need yeah, that. Yeah. They like the jeopardy, but they don't. <laughs> as long as it, it lands on somebody else. Well, I, I I did find it somewhat ironic to see the you know Chelsea fans in particular <laughs> cast as as the heroes of, of 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 part of this film, and you know. So grassroots fans sort of were the heroes, of this. but when you see Chelsea fans, like, well, you know what we're seeing now is, you know, the the devil's bargain that they made with Abramovich is now coming due. Mm. They don't know who their owners are going to be. The likelihood that it's going to be a, a a kind of an infinite wallet that will finance anything that could possibly be wished for by the manager that's probably gone. So you know. Where does that put uh, you know a, a, a huge protest against Moneyball when your success is built on that? And we're not innocent of it either. I mean, Liverpool have been exceptionally well run. You know, we're our you know I think we're eighth in the in the net spend rather than sort of up in the ludicrous uh, heights. I think Everton have spent more than Liverpool have. But at the end of the day, you know, we too are owned by a gigantic transnational mm-hmm. organization mm-hmm. with a great deal of resources and. That, who were quite happy to throw the Premier League and to throw domestic football under the bus for the for the Super League. Yeah, I, I mean, if Abramovich had come to Liverpool 15 years ago, I would have been made up. So Yeah, it could be us having that. Sort yeah, of, you know, so uh, none of us, as I keep saying, none of us are innocent in this. Mm. Yeah. Did, um, did it make you feel different about uh, Liverpool, Anthony? Uh, no, it didn't, because I think there's a difference between the business of Liverpool and the club. So the mm. club for me is, you know, it's like for us, it's our local team. It represents where we're from. I've had lots of great times there. And first went as a six-year-old. And there's the, the soul of the club, which I don't think should change. But I also don't fool myself. And if I want Liverpool to win, which I do, we need great players. And great players have huge wage demands. That money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, We're all I mean, part of it. This is this this is where I found the conclusion of the of the film that uh, you know, football <laughs> came together and ended this. It's like, well, mm. yeah, but it's a little bit platitudinous because, as we all know, most fans, if Adolf Hitler turned up with a wheelbarrow full of money, most fans would go, "Oh, he just wants to support football." Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But it's definitely worth watching. Super greed. The fight for football uh, is, uh, I think, it started on Sky last week. Still available to uh, to, to download. Uh, worth seeing. Finally, as regular listeners know, we ask our guests to bring in the greatest record of all time to add to our rolling playlist. It is an almost impossible task. That is why we make them do it. Tony Teasdale, what have you chosen and why have you chosen it? Big Fun by Inner City. Right. Why is it the greatest record of all time? Right. It's not my favourite record of all time, but it's the greatest record of all time. <laughs> because my favourite record of all time sort of changes all the time. That can be esoteric and about <laughs> sitting inside with nice headphones on. But why I like, I like, I think I like it, the fact that it's like this over 30 odd years old, made by Kevin Saunderson in a bedroom in Detroit. 
and the fact that it's absolutely everything that I love about disco and house music, thorough and total joy. Hmm. And my memories are of it of being 16 at a nightclub in a suit because back in the day, pre-rave, you had to wear a suit and a tie to get in a club. Is <laughs> we not all remember this? Yes. And that where you know the idea of you know of you know um, the love drug was like you know <laughs> three bottles of Grolsch. <laughs> and um, hearing that, and had I'd always I'd liked it when it had been top of the pops, but hearing that in a club environment, racing onto the dance floor <laughs> in my double-breasted suit, right? Was Six, it a flecked jacket? It was a. It was a. I'll send you a picture. I'll send you a picture of it, so you can laugh at me with my mm. quiffy Rick Astley haircut and just totally getting this. And I still. I mean, I like Good Life by Inner City nearly as much, and it's just everything I love. It's just I love the sound of it, you know. And we're, you know, it's like we're having but big fun. The party has just begun. It's not trying to be clever. It's just a celebration of the human spirit. It's joy. It's probably, they probably recorded it in an afternoon. And like, you know, some rock and roll record from 1953. It just, it's lack of complexity is what makes it timeless. When music starts getting very, very clever, it starts dating very quickly. Andrew, I point you to Epic House. Well, too clever. You see what I mean? And whereas those jack tracking tracks like Adonis, Marshall Jefferson and stuff like that made, you know, on three drum machines and a sampler, yes. they still find sound fantastic. So on this, I'm saying big fun by Inner City. Bum, bum, ba, bum, 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 bum. I mean, who doesn't love that? Well, I actually played it at a 50th birthday party a couple of weeks ago, and not only did the mums and dads yeah. go berserk, but so did all the young people as well. <laughs> all the kids went bonkers to it. So that's going on the playlist. Yes. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast. It's closing time chatter. What we'll be talking about over a nice beer in the sunshine. Yes, it's that simple sometimes. Anthony Teasdale, what might be your closing time chatter? I'd like to talk about... Paul Heaton singing Happy Hour in a hotel room. This is found on the Twitter website. Jackie Abbott posted it today. And I think I've seen it before, but it's two and a half minutes of mm -hmm. just perfect, joyful pop music <laughs> in what looks yeah. like a travel lodge. <laughs> and a travel lodge. Yeah. Pop, and, and what happens is they are, I think they're just rehearsing and he's got the lyrics in front of him. I mean, you should have asked me, I know them. And he's there in his sort of scally coat with his specs on. Jackie Abbott, for it is she, is sat on like a chest of drawers. And he just sings Happy Hour. The band are playing acoustic behind it. And she harmonizes beautifully with it. It's two and a half minutes. And it's the best thing you'll see all day. And it's the per it's the power of perfect pop. It's everything I like. Well, it's on your Twitter, see, so if search it out, Anthony Teasdale, um, is it? Search bar, yeah. Then yeah, we can see it. Andrew, what's your closing time chatter? Well, this weekend it is the forty fifth birthday of two thousand AD, the great comic, possibly the greatest comic. And because you couldn't really do conventions the way you used to be able to do, they're doing an online convention all weekend. Uh, featuring panels and chats uh, with uh, not only the, the the great talents who made 2000 AD, like Brian Bolland, Meg McMahon, the mm -hmm. artists, uh, you know, Steve Yowell, writers like Garth Ennis and Pat Mills, but also friends of this show, Ian Dunst, David Quantic, Sarah Morgan, Rob Williams and Stella Creasy MP are all going to be on wow. talking about 2008, talking about Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog, talking about Robusters and Rogue Trooper and the political dimension of it, but also just why it's great and why it's funny and why it's mad. Mm -hmm. And it's all free. And it's on this weekend. It's at 2000AD.com slash 45 years. And it, it begins at 12 noon tomorrow. And you can watch them subsequently on YouTube. And it looks great. And I am going to be trapped indoors because of stupid COVID. But at least I'll be trapped indoors with an online 2000AD convention to go to. Actually sounds perfect. Yes, I actually engineered the COVID <laughs> so I didn't have to go out. <laughs> Sean, what's yours? Um, well, I did go out yesterday and hopefully I didn't get 
COVID because I went to the Rickenbacker Guitars Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire Glow exhibition, which is a very posh bookshop in New Bond mm. Street called Shapiro Books. But there are so many beautiful guitars. There is a book to go with it, which I've got. You can see this fantastic Rickenbacker that was Paul Weller's. And he's just scratched into it. And it says, I am nobody, which I think is the best thing I've ever seen scratched into a guitar. And there's Johnny Marr stuff, there's the Beatles stuff, there's Susanna Hoffs. She now has her own line in Rickenbackers. But it's actually beautiful and just reminds you how an instrument can just shape the way that music and culture is. Simply a guitar will inform how we listen to certain bands, inform how we then go and read books, meet friends, you know, you know, just it can shape your whole life. Something that's made out of wood that's got some strings in it, and they're absolutely beautiful. And I want to kind of touch them all and lick them all. They're just gorgeous. So I would say they've extended it because it's been really popular. It's on till the second of April. So if you are in London Town, New Bond Street, Shapiro Books, go and lick some Rickenbackers if you're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> of course, don't do that. You'll get yeah, the COVID. Don't do that. Just, just... I, inter- I interviewed Martin, who wrote that, Martin Kelly about that some yes, amazing tales yeah. you know how yeah how an unsold rickenbacker made its way to germany where a a certain uh j uh j lennon of uh walton liverpool just went and bought it and then that you know what i mean it just changed the world, doesn't it? and then he and then um um, David Crosby and mm-hmm. Stephen Phil mm-hmm. from Crosby's from the Birds, they go and watch a hard day's night. They see Lennon playing the Rickenbacker and form the Birds after seeing that. All from that one. That's what got me about it. It's how influential that just you. I think you've nailed it, Sean. It's that one instrument nails the sound for it for every decade afterwards it is yeah. incredible and they are so beautiful you know they, when a guitar looks like a proper guitar they're lovely i'm sure andrew is just <laughs> shriveling up with horror at the thought of it. Yeah. yeah i'll <laughs> go to the one where they've got drum machines that's what oh, I'm like, oh come on we can <laughs> like both andrew we can like both. <laughs> you can like both and that is the end of the podcast thank you anthony teasdale for joining us Thank you. Absolute pleasure as ever, guys. Welcome back whenever you can make it. Uh, May you have the most wonderful of weekends. Listeners, never forget, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist, available on Spotify and Tidal. Uh, The link is at the top of the show notes. Uh, Choose your favourites and then buy them from Bandcamp and support bands. From me, from Sean, from producer Jade Bailey, thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week. Culture Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison and Sean Pattenden. The producers were Yelena Sofronievic and me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.